So in our text this morning, two blind men approach Christ and they ask him to help them recover their sight. Now, if you've been tracking along with us uh, as we've been working through this Gospel of Matthew, you will notice that way back in chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew writes this, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Then we get verse chapters 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. And in verse 35 of chapter 9, we see it bookended with the same verse almost verbatim. See, look at Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Matthew really wants us to know two things about the ministry of Jesus here. That he was authoritative in his teaching, he was authoritative in his power. And so verses chapters 5 to 7 record him preaching the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of all of humankind, the Sermon on the Mount. And after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, takes a number of examples of Christ's authority over different aspects of the physical creation, and he records them for us, and in so doing, he's painting a picture as to the identity of this man, Jesus Christ. And while our miracle in chapter 9, verses 27 to 34, might not be the most spectacular act that Christ has performed up to this moment, I will tell you this, it is, most, it is certainly the most telling. While each one of the deeds that Christ has performed in chapters 8 and 9 clarify with increasing measure the identity of this Jesus from Nazareth, this act, the healing of these blind men, is the single clearest identity marker that Matthew gives us up to this point. You see, Matthew, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has selected and committed to writing a number of miraculous deeds committed by and carried out by Christ. And each one of these miracles, you can kind of liken it to a, a snapshot that you put on a collage. And that collage inevitably and eventually creates a picture. You can liken all of the things that Matthew records in these chapters as brush strokes of a master artist, each brush stroke adding detail to the picture and refining the image that is being made. And what is the image that Matthew is painting here? That Jesus, this Jesus, is truly the long-awaited Messiah. This Jesus is the Redeemer and the Deliverer of Israel. But not only is He the Redeemer and the Deliverer of Israel, He is the Redeemer of every single human being on this planet who truly believes in Him by grace alone, through faith alone. This is Jesus, God come to us in the flesh on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And so the picture painted in Matthew's chap Matthew chapters 8 and 9, I don't know if you noticed it, but it's capped off with Christ's restoration of sight to the blind. Now, if you've been walking with us through these chapters, you might think to yourself, well, this, this miracle actually seems quite tame in comparison to what we've already seen. I mean, in the first stroke of Matthew's brilliant painting... He recounts Christ's cleansing and healing of a leper way back in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8. 
Now you got to know, in Israel, the leper lived the life of an outcast. The leper lived life apart from the community of Israel, banished, excluded from any temple or synagogue worship. Leprosy in this, at this time, in this culture, exiled the sufferer from any and from all the good things that the average person in Israel might have enjoyed. And the Lord, in His grace, instituted a system for those who had contracted leprosy, who had been pronounced unclean by the priest in Leviticus 13, he, uh, he instituted a, a system whereby they could be readmitted back into the camp when and if their leprosy cleared up. And we read about that in Leviticus 14. However, not one single person in all of Israel's history had ever utilized the provisions that had been given by the Lord in Leviticus 14 to Israel. Not one person after the priest had said to them, because of leprosy, unclean, had ever been readmitted into the camp of Israel because leprosy did not clear up on its own. Not one person offered the sacrifices outlined in Leviticus 14 to be readmitted into the society. And so this is rather surprising as Jesus descends from the mount after preaching his most outstanding sermon that a leper comes and kneels before him and wonders if Christ might make him clean, if Christ might heal him of his affliction. And Christ extends his compassion to this leper, reaches out his hand and touches the leper, turning him from a leper into a former leper. And then he makes an interesting command in verse 4 of chapter 8 saying this, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded for a proof to them. A proof? What proof? Proof of what? Proof that the fact that there is something new happening here. The fact that a leper for the first time in Israel's history utilized the provisions of Leviticus 14 for readmittance into the community as a now cleansed and healed man ought to have signaled to the religious leaders, to the religious establishment, that a new day is dawning. Such things, such miraculous deeds were expected to occur when the Messiah arrived. And perhaps, maybe, possibly, the religious leaders might see this leper, this healed leper, offering the sacrifices commanded by Moses, and upon seeing, and upon hearing, they might investigate. And upon investigating, they might recognize that this Jesus, he is the Messiah. And then they would go out and point Israel to her true and rightful king. However, they didn't do that. Matthew continued adding brushstrokes to this masterpiece of a painting that is Christ in recounting next Christ's authority to heal over a distance. And we don't even know how great the distance was, but we know that a centurion came to Jesus and asked him to heal his servant who was greatly suffering. And when Jesus said, I'll go to your house and I'll heal him, the man said, no, 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 you don't need to do that. I know your authority. I have faith that you can do it, and all Jesus needed to do was say the word. He said the word, and the person was healed over a distance. And Matthew here shows us that in Jesus, wholeness and healing and deliverance are available to more than just the nation of Israel, but to everyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ. But Matthew goes on, and he still adds more strokes to this picture as he documents the account of Christ's calming the sea. You remember that? 
He calmed the sea by his word alone. At the rebuke of Jesus, the wind and the waves obey, the seismic storms and the agitations transform into what Matthew calls a great calm, a serene and crystal sea, revealing that Christ is not some ordinary man. Christ is not just a regular human being, but he is the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1.19. And the Old Testament made it clear, the stilling of creation's roaring waves the up and upheavals is the domain of God himself. And we read, for example, in Psalm 65, verses 5 to 8, O God of our salvation... The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. And along with healing the leper, healing the the centurion's servant, calming the sea by his word alone, along with these wonders, Matthew signals to the reader again, that the times of Messiah have arrived in the healing of the woman with the discharge of blood. See, this woman, like a leper, like the leper, as a result of her condition, was barred from life in the community of Israel. She was disqualified from temple and synagogue worship because her condition resulted in her state of perpetual uncleanness. And uncleanness in the Old Testament is a distinction that is made for those who are able to go and worship at the temple or tabernacle and those who are not. If you're unclean, you are not allowed to go worship with the community. And there were different lengths of uncleanness. Some things were lifetime uncleannesses. Some things were temporary uncleannesses. This woman suffered from uh, a, a, a lifelong uncleanness. However, this woman noticed something in Jesus. She saw something in Jesus, and so she boldly pressed through the crowd, knowing beyond any shadow of a doubt, coming to Jesus in full assurance that Christ could and would heal her. She thought, I, she thought to herself, I believe so strongly in the authority, I believe so strongly in the power and the compassion of Jesus that all I need to do is get to him and touch the fringes of his robe. And as she touched the fringes of Christ's garment, she was instantly healed of her condition. And as we read that, Matthew hopes that the prophecy, uh, the Lord, the, the prophetic words of the Lord through the prophet Malachi are thrust to the forefront. We read them in Malachi 4, 2, where we read this. For you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. For those who fear the name of the Lord, for those who trust Him and strive to obey Him, they will find healing in His wings. And the meaning of the Hebrew word here for wings includes the idea of, and I quote, the fringes of a garment. So Malachi prophesied that the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in the fringes of His robe. And this, for Matthew, is yet another snapshot, another beautiful brushstroke, another sign of the the fact and the reality that Messiah has come. Rejoice, O Israel. And along with the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage, Jesus also approached the house of Jairus, a synagogue ruler, whose daughter had recently died, 
And as he approached the house, the grief and the mourning was loud, loud enough that Matthew calls it a commotion, a noisy commotion. But Jesus commanded all of the mourners and all of the flautists as they played their flutes in mourning to go away. And he said, you need to go away because the girl is only sleeping. And all of this commotion is far too loud for someone who is simply sleeping. And the crowds that were gathered for this funeral, they all laughed at Jesus. They all mocked Jesus for making what they assumed to be an absolutely foolish statement. But Jesus entered into the house, took the girl by the hand, and said, according to Mark chapter 5, 41 to 42, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And while all of these miracles, all of these snapshots, all of these brushstrokes reveal Christ and his authority, all of them are quite amazing. Each one of them is like turning a diamond in the sunlight to reveal new dimensions to the precious stone. None of them are so clearly, none of them so clearly identify Jesus and who he is as the miracle that is performed here in our text this morning. And what did Jesus do? He restored sight to the blind. Now, you just walked with me through a number of miraculous events that Matthew has recorded in chapters 8 and 9. I mean, stilling the seas, the roaring seas with a word is pretty impressive. Raising the dead is really impressive. But why is it that Matthew doesn't end with the calming of the sea? Why is it that Matthew doesn't finish off with the raising of the dead? Why is the capstone of his picture of Christ recovery of sight to the blind? It's because the Jewish peoples believed, and rightly so, based on an accurate reading of God's holy inspired word, that the Messiah and Messiah alone would be the one who restores sight to the blind. When one reads the Old Testament, one will note a number of miracles performed throughout by the Lord's prophets and leaders. For example, the Lord raised up Moses and Moses pronounced plagues upon Egypt, devastating, destructive strikes and plagues upon Egypt, such as never has been seen since that time. And then he used Moses to part the Red Sea so that Israel could, could escape through that sea. And then as Egypt went in to follow the Israelites, the Lord closed over that sea and destroyed the entire Egyptian army without Israel ever having to have raised a weapon at all. The Lord then used Elijah to bring a drought, a drought that lasted years upon Israel and their wicked and disobedient king Ahab. The Lord also used Elijah to call down fire in a competition that he had against hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the priests representing the false god, the false idol, the non-existent idol, Baal. The Lord used Elijah's successor, Elisha, to raise the dead. The Lord used Elisha to make axe heads made of iron float to the top of water so that people, the poor, could find the axe head. The Lord still used others to provide food to the hungry supernaturally, to heal people of diseases and afflictions. The Lord used people like Samson by giving him abnormal and spectacular levels of strength with which to deliver Israel. However, 
However, there is not one, there is one miracle that no one anywhere at any time performed for anyone in all of the Old Testament and in all of the New. Restoration of sight to the blind. This act is found nowhere in the Old Testament. Nor is it found anywhere in the New Testament. The closest instance that we have of sight restored comes in the New Testament at Saul's conversion. As Saul is on the road to Damascus, a light from heaven shone around him as Jesus spoke with him. And that light caused a temporary condition where he could see nothing because there were scales over his eyes. And he visited Ananias, and Ananias prayed to the Lord that Paul would regain, Saul would regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the text tells us that immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. But this is not the same as recovery of sight to the blind. This event in Saul's life was a spiritual object lesson for him. The Lord had removed the blinders of his heart, and now Saul could see the Lord clearly. And he knew that this was the Messiah that he was going to dedicate his life to. But the average Israelite understood and recognized this fact. No one has ever been healed, no one had ever been healed of real, true blindness. In fact, after Jesus healed the man born blind in John chapter 9, the man, when the Pharisees interrogated him, said this in John 9.32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So you see, the recovery of sight to the blind was a miracle reserved for Messiah alone as an unmistakable sign, an irrefutable, indisputable, incontrovertible identifying mark of Messiah's identity. When Messiah arrives, you will know exactly who he is because you will see sight returned to the blind. And we read about this in the Old Testament a number of times. Isaiah chapter 35, for example, we read this in verses 1 to 6. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf man unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And just a few chapters later, the Lord again speaks through Isaiah in 42, chapter 42, verses 6 to 8, saying this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. 
And in Isaiah 61, verse 1, we read this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is the text that Jesus read in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. However, he read it from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. You see, Israelites in the Roman Empire, a lot of them had lost the ability to speak Hebrew, and so the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And in the Greek that Jesus picks up, they clarify the meaning of the last line in Isaiah 61, verse 1. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Jesus himself unrolled the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. He found the place where this text was written and he read it out to the people at the synagogue. And listen to what it, the Septuagint, how the Septuagint clarifies it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus, after reading this, rolled the scroll up, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And after reading it, the text tells us that all of the eyes of the people in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus, wondering what he was going to say next. And what did he say? Luke 4 Verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And again, in Psalm 146, verses 7 to 9, the psalmist praises the Lord, saying this, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And in just a few chapters, in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew records the time when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we search or look for another? This is Matthew 12, 3. And Jesus looked at the disciples of John and said to them, I want you to report everything you see to John. And what do you think the first thing Jesus mentions uh, to, for them to bring back to their, in their report to John? You see it in eleven five. Tell John the blind receive their sight. It's as if Jesus looks at the disciples of John and says, here's the clincher, guys. The blind receive their sight. That's it. Amen. And in addition to all this, while Jesus did indeed heal many people of numerous ailments throughout his earthly ministry, do you know what miracle is recorded most throughout the gospel? Gospels? Healing the blind. We are given at least seven instances of Jesus healing specific blind people. And then we are given two more occasions of his general healings of the blind, without any numbers attached. First, in our text this morning, we see Christ heals two blind men, and we're going to talk about them in a minute. In Mark 8:22, we read of Jesus healing a blind man in Bethsaida when he spit on the man's eyes and then laid his hands on, the, on them, and the man's sight was restored. 
In Matthew 12, 22 to 23, we read of a demon-oppressed man who was both blind and mute. And this man was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man, the text tells us, so that the man spoke and saw. Now, after this man spoke and saw, can you guess what the reaction of the crowd was? They were amazed, and in 12.23 we read that they said this, Can this be the son of David? Meaning, is this the Messiah? I think he's here. They understood the gravity and the significance of what they had just observed. And in Matthew 20.29-34 we read again of Jesus restoring sight to the blind, this time to two visionless beggars while on his way to Jericho. The beggars shouted to Jesus, but the crowds rebuked the beggars when they were shouting to Jesus, and they they told him, be silent, be silent, be silent. But Jesus stopped right in his tracks, commanded that those men be brought to him, and he healed them, brought back their sight. And in John chapter 9, we read of Jesus healing the man born blind, by spitting on the ground, making mud with the saliva, and anointing the man's eyes. And then he tells the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And when the man had done what Jesus told him to do, the man came back able to see. His sight had been recovered. And in John chapter 9, we note that the Pharisees took a very special interest in this case. Why would they be so inclined to spend so much time investigating this case? They interrogated the man's parents. They brought them in to check if it was true. Was this guy actually born blind? And the parents were afraid of the Pharisees because the Pharisees had already said, if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, we're going to throw him out of the synagogue. And so they deflected the questions by saying in John 9, 24, he's of age, ask him. And so they called this healed man in and they said to him, Give glory to God, for we know that this man, this Jesus, is a sinner. And the man replied to them with some of the most famous words in all of Scripture. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. And Matthew gives two more instances of general healings in which the blind have their sight restored. The first is in Matthew 15, verses 29 to 31, where we read this. Jesus went up from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And then also, finally, in chapter 21, verse 14, we read, as Jesus was in the temple, that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The recovery of sight to the blind was, for an Israelite, such a tremendous miracle that upon the death of Lazarus, have you ever looked at this verse on the death of Lazarus in John 11:37 the people wondered as Lazarus died they said they asked this could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying you see in the mind of their of the, the average Jew the power to open the eyes of the blind 
is at least as impressive, if not more impressive, than the raising of the dead. If this Jesus has the power or possesses the power to return sight to the blind, then of course he can keep the dead from dying or the people from dying. It goes without saying that one with such power to do such unheard of things can keep Lazarus from dying as well. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he will see that he records five separate instances of sight to the blind. What's the reason for this constant repetition in Matthew of this particular miraculous deed? Well, Matthew wrote his gospel with the Jews in mind. And so he hopes that the Jewish reader of this gospel might see with their spiritual eyes that this Jesus can and does heal the physical eyes. And as a result, come to the conclusion, the obvious conclusion, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the King of Israel. But Matthew also hopes that we who read would also see who this man Jesus is. Not only is he the Savior of Israel, but he is the Savior of everyone who puts their faith and their trust in him. He is the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. So for this reason, Matthew actually caps off these chapters of identity revelation, of revealing the authority and the power of Christ with this miracle of restoring sight to the blind. And the narrative in our text begins in verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, meaning when Jesus left the house of Jairus and walked to a different place, something happened in verse 27. Two blind men followed him. Two blind men, two men who by reason of their blindness hadn't actually witnessed anything that Christ had miraculously done. They'd only heard the reports. But for them, what they heard, what they hear is enough to convince them. The reports kindle in them a faith and their understanding is clear. These two blind men are able to see something that the Pharisees and the religious leaders with their working eyes cannot see. This is the Messiah come to heal us. This is the Messiah come to save us. And so they cried aloud, verse 27. Meaning they shouted loudly and with great intensity. Whereas the woman with the issue of blood secretly pressed through the crowd, these men had no such inhibitions. This was a large crowd of loud and noisy people following Jesus. Lots of people talking, lots of people marveling. And these blind men, based on the fact that they were blind, could not simply wade through the crowd and hope to get to him. They had to yell, they had to shout over the crowd to capture Jesus' attention. And what did they shout? And don't overlook this. What is it that they shouted? Verse 27 Have mercy on us, son of David. This is an important title that these men ascribe to Jesus. And it's the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that anyone other than Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, ascribes this title to Jesus. For these blind men to cry out and name Jesus the son of David revealed their belief that this Jesus, this man walking here and now with these crowds is and was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to their nation. Jesus is the long-awaited Redeemer. He is heir to the throne of David, heir to the promises that the Lord had given to David. We read those promises in 2 Samuel 7. 
These promises were given to David by the Lord through the prophet Nathan. And in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12, we read this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for your, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. David loving the Lord as deeply as he did, sought to build the Lord a house, sought to build the Lord a temple in Jerusalem. But the Lord said, no, you are not going to do this. And instead, the Lord promised to build a house for David. This is the type of God we serve. David, I know you want to build a house for me, but I've got something better in mind for you. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, and your dynasty will endure forever. And while the immediate context of 2 Samuel chapter 7 refers to Solomon, his immediate son, who did indeed build a great house for the Lord in Jerusalem, he is the one who would be punished when he did wrong, and that punishment would come from the hands of men. The greater context in this, te- in this chapter, or in this text, points to a greater son of David. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has initiated and is right now building an even greater house than the one Solomon built. That's us here. All of us gathering around the world to worship the Lord right now together. That Jesus is the greater son prophesied in 2 Samuel is made clear to us by the preachers in the New Testament. Peter, for example, preaching in Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, said this, speaking of David, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 preached this, God raised up David to be Israel's king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And the writer of Hebrews Hebrews, quotes 2 Samuel in a direct reference to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. When he's speaking of the supremacy of Christ over angels, the writer of Hebrews directly quotes 2 Samuel 7.14 as a reference to Jesus Christ. When he said, For to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And while... The immediate context tells us that Solomon will be disciplined with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He also was flogged by the rods of men and punished by the rod of the stripes of wicked men, but not for any wrongs that he'd committed because there were none. Our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect and sinless. He is God come to us in the flesh. 
But he was beaten and he was bruised instead for the wrongs that we have committed, that you have committed. And he bore in himself both the wrath of man and the wrath of God for our wrongs. The wrath of God is the only one that saves us. But these wicked men put, took their, put their hands on him and they beat him and they bruised him and they pulled out his hair and they flogged him. But the promise in 2 Samuel 7, that this promise made to David looks beyond Solomon and to Christ is shown by the usage of the word forever. There's a forever aspect to this promise. The throne of Solomon ceased once Solomon died. The throne of David in general ceased to exist during and after the exile. And as a result of this, the people understood that there is a greater meaning to the promises given to David in 2 Samuel 7. That there is one coming who will fulfill this foreverness of the promise. And so the Jewish leaders, therefore, looked for this one. They set their eyes to search for this Messiah who would establish the kingdom promised to David. They looked for this one who would arrive and immediately reestablish the throne, who would immediately crush the Romans, who would immediately begin ruling the nations with a rod of iron. However, this was a misrepresentation of the Old Testament because the Lord had always made it clear to Israel, Repent, O Israel, and the kingdom will be established. Return to me, and I will return to you. But Israel as a whole refused to repent. And so the promised kingdom would not be set in place because the promised kingdom to Israel will not be set in place prior to her repentance. And so this delay in kingdom establishment along with Jesus' calls, relentless calls for repentance, a call that extended even to the religious elites who thought that they didn't need any repentance. I'm good. God loves me because I follow the rules and I meticulously obey all of the things in the Old Testament. I'm good. I don't need to repent. When Jesus came to them and said, repent, 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 it caused them to hate and despise Jesus to the point, to the point that even with such clear evidence of his identity set before their very eyes, they could conclude and they could actually verbalize that far from Jesus being the promised Messiah... Far from Jesus being the son of David, Jesus is empowered by the demonic. You see that in 9.34. The Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is not the type of Messiah the Pharisees were looking for. Not the type of Messiah they want. And so they hate him. And they... Tell the crowds that he casts out demons by the prince of demons. But here's the reality. It's a reality the Pharisees needed to come to grips with. It's one that we need to come to grips with. Jesus is who he is. And he doesn't conform to us. We conform to him. Jesus doesn't submit himself to our whims and our pleasures and our fancies. When we come to Christ, if we truly come to Him, we submit ourselves to Him as Savior and Lord and conform our lives after His example. We heed what He says in Scripture and we listen to it. When we read His commands, if, even if we don't understand them, we immediately say, He's right. Jesus is always right. And I obey. 
But the Pharisees refused to pattern their lives after the teachings of Jesus. And so all of this background reveals just what these blind men have seen in Jesus that led them to ascribe to Jesus the title Son of David. But it seems, if you look at the text, it seems that Jesus didn't respond to the men until they got to the house. You notice that? In verse 28, the text tells us he, went in, he entered the house and it was only at this point that the blind men made their way to him, that they got to him in verse 28. And then Jesus spoke with them and he asked them this question. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, do you know what Jesus is asking here? In essence, you need to hear the question that he's asking. In essence, Jesus is looking at these blind men and saying to them, you know this has never been done before, right? You know that recovery of sight to the blind is a miraculous work that is given to Messiah alone to perform, right? Do you have such faith? Are you confident that I am He? Do you trust that I am the Christ, that I am capable of this great work? And look at their response, the response of faith. And they said to him, yes, Lord, yes. We do believe in your compassionate power and we know who you are. We might not be able to see with our eyes, but we can see who you are. We know you can do this. Have mercy on us. So verse 29 Here it is. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done for you. And their eyes were opened. The English wording here can be a little bit confusing. It almost sounds as though Jesus is saying, In line with the strength of your faith, be it done for you. As though Christ's healing is is dependent on on the proportion of their faith. The idea that many of the modern huckster faith preacher, faith and health and wealth type preachers bring up, they take texts like this and they say, well, if, you, if, there was, if they only had a little faith, the miracle would have been stunted. But that is not what's happening here. Jesus is not saying, according to your faith or in proportion to your faith, be it done to you. He is saying, in response to your faith, be healed. And in verse 30, glory of glories, wonder of wonders, the Messiah is here. He has arrived. Their eyes were open. Their eyes now functioned properly. They could see. They were blind, and now they can see. He is the Messiah. And Jesus sternly warned them in verse 30, see that no one knows about it. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Why would Jesus so strongly insist that this miracle remain a secret? Well, there's a couple of good reasons. First, he didn't want the miracles to drown out the message. You see, the message of the good news, proclaiming the kingdom of God, repent for the kingdom is at hand, proclaiming the gospel, the saving gospel of our Lord, is the most important aspect of his earthly ministry aside from his death, burial, resurrection. And the more people witnessed the miracles, the more they got amped about the great wonders that were coming from his, from his hands and from his power. The, and without them actually hearing the message that were attached, was attached to those miracles, they missed the point. 
The miracles of Christ were meant to gain a hearing for the word. The hearing of the word and belief in the word was the most important thing. But as more people gathered around him and the more attention he elicited, there was another issue at hand. Rome might begin to see him as some sort of subversive. You see, in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, John records that the people, after being fed by Christ, tried to take him by force and make him king. That would surely have gotten the Romans involved. And this is what the religious leaders would continually try to do to Jesus in their questioning of him throughout the gospel. They always came to him with some politically charged element in their questions, hoping to get him to answer wrongly so that the Jews either hated him or Rome hated him, and then they could level some treasonous charge against him. But that wasn't it. Also, Jesus doesn't want this to go further because Jesus is not interested in winning to himself false, fickle, followers those who remain with him not because they truly repent and believe in him but because they eat their fill of the fishes and the loaves they stay with him because jesus is doing stuff for them he's healing their sicknesses or he's giving them some earthly benefit it's these fair weather types who deserted jesus when he taught and demanded tough things from them There are so many like these crowds who attach themselves to Jesus in some way, but when his word is actually opened up and the demands of Christ and the instructions of Christ are made clear and set forth and calls to obey those commands are issued, the people flee. That's exactly what would happen to Christ in his life. And the Reverend John MacArthur in one of his commentaries wrote of this tendency saying this and i quote as long as jesus can be kept at arm's length and as long as his demanding and confrontational teachings are ignored or denied he's often acceptable to the world but when he accuses of sin and demands repentance and submission the world turns away when man's need for salvation is preached and Jesus' claims of lordship are pressed, that is another matter. Those who once praised him become his critics, and those who once marveled at him become his enemies. People will often give the highest praise to Jesus, even acknowledge his divinity and his perfection, as long as no mention is made of his condemning to hell the liar, murderer, adulterer, homosexual, thief, and every other sinner who refuses to repent and receive him as Savior and Lord, end quote. And so Jesus called for certain miraculous deeds to remain secret in order to avoid accumulating to himself the adoration of such fake and phony followers who one day love him as he gives them bread and the next day call for his crucifixion because he demands repentance. These formerly blind men, however, didn't listen. And they went away and they spread his fame throughout all that district, the next verse tells us. You see, we tend to be so terrible with secrets. And they were so excited by what, they had, just hap- what had just happened to them. They were so in awe of Jesus and his power, they couldn't keep it in. And they told everyone. Now, seeing all of this, 
how do you think the religious leaders ought to have responded? They just witnessed the recovery of sight to the blind. They knew the scriptures well enough to know what Jesus had just done. He had basically pulled out the calling card from his coat and given it to them and written on it in big letters is, Messiah! He had revealed his identity to them, handing it to them on a silver platter. And as the formerly blind men left the presence of Jesus, verse 32 tells us that crossing their path came a demon-possessed man who was mute. And so as the Pharisees are, are looking at what they just witnessed, a man under the control of the demonic who was unable to speak was set before Jesus, and Jesus drove the demon out of the man. And verse 33 tells us the mute man spoke. It's almost as if he, Jesus, is, Jesus simply said to them, you need a little bit more proof? Isaiah 30, or Isaiah 30, was it 32? Isaiah 35. Both of them are written here, so here's a little extra for you. You remember, in Isaiah 35, verse 6, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf man unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The blind have been have had their sight recovered. The tongue of the mute has been loosed. Now how are the Pharisees going to respond? It's all right there for them to see and to respond to. In this short time, the blind see, the captives are set free, the mute speak. I mean, how clear can it be, Pharisees? The Messiah is here, and two responses are produced among the people, one among the people, one among the crowd or the Pharisees. And you see in verse 33 the response of the crowd. The crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. You see, the crowds were beyond amazed. They were astonished by what they had just witnessed. Surely the divine is at work in this man. We've never seen anything like this. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. But these crowds, while amazed by Jesus, hadn't submitted themselves to him. And it would be these same crowds soon crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But in this moment, these crowds are stunned by and in awe of Jesus. And the Pharisees, they could not Stand it. That the crowds marveled at someone other than them. That the crowds were so taken by someone who both flouted their religious rules and rebuked their religious system. That the crowds would look to a man who revealed a different way, a better way. It enraged the Pharisees. And this is not a problem limited to just the Pharisees, right? We all get angry when we have self-made rules and the people around us rebuke and or flout our rules. You see, these Pharisees, like so many of us, take, took themselves so seriously. And such pride led to their response that instead of repenting and turning to Christ, after such an obvious identification of himself, they said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Again, 
Even with messianic signs on full display, the Pharisees preferred not to believe. They preferred to ascribe the wonders of Jesus to the devil. They preferred to spread a rumor that the source of Christ's power is demonic. But we know the truth. When we read God's word, we recognize and we see that Jesus casts out demons not because of some demonic power. He casts out demons and by so doing, he reveals that he is authoritative over the demonic realm. He has overcome the demonic realm. He is authoritative over sin, authoritative over death, authoritative over the devil. And that he casts out demons reveals the truth of his promise and shows us that one day the fullness will come to pass, that Satan will be destroyed, he will be cast down, thrown into the lake of fire, never to torment or harass his children again. And while Jesus didn't respond to their statement this time, he will in chapter 12, where he will speak of the unforgivable sin. But for now, the reader is meant to sit stunned by the blindness of these Pharisees. Can you imagine being so hardened that you attribute the compassionate works of Christ to the devil? Can you imagine seeing such clear evidence of the identity of Jesus as Messiah come to seek and save the lost that you would reject and instead spread a rumor that he's demonic in origin? Such rejection is such a clear evidence of a rock-hard heart. And Matthew ends right there in that section, and he moves on to a new section in 35. And that's supposed to just sit with you. As you sit there, how could they be so blind? How could the blind men see who Jesus is and the Pharisees who were supposed to know who he was, how could they be so blind? And these have always been the responses to Jesus, right? In this text, you've got three separate groups of people. And which one are you? Are you the crowds following Jesus as long as he continues to amaze you and provide you some sort of benefit in this earthly physical life? And then when that goes away, you kind of walk away and you're like, you know what, that's it, I tried Jesus once and I'm gone. Or are you like the Pharisees who despise him no matter what proof is set before your eyes? Or are you like his disciples who we will soon be introduced to in the beginning of chapter 10? who've left everything to follow him, who dedicate the totality of their lives to his service. See, when you sum it all up and you look at 8 and 9 and you see that Jesus came healing people physically, we as the readers are supposed to recognize that these physical healings are not simply physical healings that are meant to terminate upon themselves. As if to be like, oh wow, look at that wonderful healing. All right, let's move on. The healings of Christ are meant to point us beyond the actual physical healing to a deeper, more wonderful spiritual reality. Christ is not simply the Lord come to recover physical sight to the blind. But, as the Apostle Paul professed to Agrippa when standing before him giving his testimony, the Lord sent Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Matthew has shown you the identity of Christ. How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to the wonders and the glories of Christ? Who are you? Are you a member of the crowd? Are you a fixture of the Pharisees? Or are you a true disciple, forgiven of your sins, and welcomed into the family of God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Father, we praise you and we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for your spirit moving in Matthew to put these wonderful things, these wonderful truths down for us in the Gospel of Matthew. We thank you that you inspired him, that you moved him along. We thank you that you caused him to organize things the way that, they, that he did. We praise you for it all. And Lord, I thank you for the crystal clear picture of Christ's identity in his gospel, in your word through Matthew. And I pray that we would hear these words this morning and recognize who you are, recognize exactly who Christ is, and we wouldn't be those who try to get you to conform yourself to us, but that you would help us to be those who submit ourselves in all things to the wonders of Christ. I pray that you would teach us the joys of life, of a life lived in submission and obedience to Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Lamb come to take away the sin of the world. And we praise you and honor you and exalt you and glorify you in his name. Amen.